I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. Today's guest is Trevor Peterson, counselor and psychoanalyst in practice in Laramie, Wyoming. His 2015 book, The Economics of Libido, Psychic Bisexuality, the superego, and the centrality of the Oedipus complex, won the 2016 Gradiva Award for Best Book. His new book is Psychoanalysis and Hidden Narrative in Film, Reading the Symptom. It started with philosophy, and that I was into um, Nietzsche and some German philosophy, and then started getting some footnotes in some of the books and some references that included psychoanalysis. Like a lot of Nietzsche's ideas are psychological, and so there was references to like some of Freud's concepts. And so it wasn't taught in um, my philosophy program at all. It was like a kind of standard analytical program, and at best you got into some Wittgenstein. And, you know, things that are on the margins of the analytical world. But, like, um, during that time, I'd say it was more about some friends I had made when I was in college or university. And and they would talk about Nietzsche and talk about, like, different philosophers. And so I started reading that stuff on my own. And um, then from there, uh, I I think I started with um, some Freud. I think um, Wilhelm Reich. um, and Lacan, like those are kind of like the two kind of prominent figures for me when I first started. And, uh, yeah, I'd say from there I got interested in it, like started to kind of, um, change the way I I thought philosophically because of it. And then it got to the point where, uh, a friend of mine sent me, um, a, uh, email that had like a advertisement for the Boston graduate school of psychoanalysis. And then I found out that they could actually take, um, Canadian, um, Canadian, um, I guess student grants or, um, I could take out a student loan and it would pay for it. So that opened up the possibility. And then I really had that strong feeling that I had to go there and learn for myself, see for myself, start doing clinical work and, and kind of seeing like, what was real in it and what wasn't real. Um, and what was that program like? They did process education. And so instead of um, it being set up like a normal seminar and kind of you, a person getting like a lot of like a sense for like, say, um, analytic um, arguments or, or controversies or discussions throughout um, the ages, you know what I mean? Like there's so many different schools and, and they, they would have Klein and they would have some like self psychology and, and, and things like that, but they didn't set it up in a way of like kind of teaching you the history or teaching you the concepts. It was more like you showed up to a class after having read up a single paper or reading like maybe um, two or three papers and then you would just discuss them. But then it, the teacher wouldn't say like, this is right or this is wrong, or it would just be like that classroom discussion. So you'd have people kind of saying like, well, I thought this or, and more often the case, like I felt this when I was reading this, like I felt this was too intellectual, you know? And then, so, um, the engagement with the ideas wasn't strong there. And then some of the process also felt strange because it wasn't like a, it wasn't a therapy group. Like it wasn't like you were going in there with that in mind. And, And I think that, you know, there's that, um, like a bit of fear of like, well, if I'm going to get fully into like my feelings or, or like my reactions to things, it's like, um, is this going to be like a strike against me? You know, like the, to have your teachers grading you and like, cause that, that doesn't happen in a group psychotherapy session, you know, like you're not getting that sense of like, and I'm also being graded by this person. So it was in this strange in between place where they try to do process. Um, but it was also supposed to be didactic and, um, and there was also, I think a strong emphasis on just purely reading Freud, um, along with everything. So, um, it felt backwards at times, like to just be reading Freud and then, um, and like a lot of the group sessions didn't feel productive. Like, 
um, like there were a few classes I can remember where like people got to the point where there'd be, um, some kind of rivalry or things going on between people. And then there'd be like a student breaking down because like some other people in classes, like were calling them out for something or, or kind of pathologizing them. And, and I, I often didn't get the sense that it was productive. Like, you know, as if the person went through something there in that moment and then they became like a uh, more healthy or like a, a better person. It just oftentimes kind of just, um, felt like things broke down and you'd be stuck in those conflicts. Um, but it did give me a lot of respect for Freud, like having to read so much of him and like trying to figure it out. Like I just, um, like I'd say that my having to read Freud there, like made me like get into him a lot more and kind of start to have, uh, like that sense that he, he was saying something, um, important for the history of philosophy. He was saying something important for just understanding people. And, um, oftentimes like I felt like that the complexity of his thought was like, um, stronger or, or, or better than like, you know, what I had read in Lacan or what I had read in, in Wilhelm Reich, even though there's lots of people I feel like I'm influenced by and, and kind of had, you know, um, parts of the picture where it's like, you know, like say, uh, Reich in like, uh, his character types. Like I found that to be very useful, um, in the clinic, just like how to conceptualize this person and how to conceptualize like how, you know, some of the, um, breakdowns in the session when things weren't just free floating and things weren't progressing, but then they get stuck in this like situation where they're externalizing a lot and like they're complaining about things and then they're kind of just stuck in there and, and it's not loosening up to go into like more personal content. Mm -hmm. Like Reich was so important for me there. And, uh, uh, I, and, and there's so many more, like, I feel like I could, there's so many, um, and other analysts that I've loved or, or felt like that, like I learned uh, a lot from, but, um, I was happy with, um, what I learned and, and, uh, clinically and, and some of the approaches there. And I definitely still keep that in mind, but I, I hardly feel like I practice that way at all. Like in the modern analytic tradition, like the, you know, just, just waiting for the person to make the contact and kind of, I like to be a lot more active and get associations. I like to build a lot more things. And in some cases I can't, and I'm glad I had the training cause like I will sit with them for like session after session and kind of just wait for them to come to me. But there's so many people that you can be more active with and, and why not? Like, um, so that's how I got in and, uh, that's how I started publishing and, and writing is, is just kind of all the ways that I, try to make sense of, of things and then collecting it together from like student papers. And then eventually it got big enough for, you know, it's ready for a book and those are continuing. And I feel like I have still have a lot to say. And now it's more from like my, my clinical experience than it is from me trying to conceptualize like a psychoanalytic model or framework. And that's your first book was The Economics of Libido, Psychic Bisexuality, the Superego, and the Centrality of the Oedipus Complex. Yes, that is the first one. <laughs> so what's that about? Um, just, I'd say it's, there's hardly anything for clinical examples in it. It's just me taking like a, a larger framework and trying to understand like, like how could you how can you conceive of psychoanalysis and, and the model of personality in a coherent way, you know, like different, um, like a, a vertical axis, a horizontal axis and, and just like, um, trying to make sense for like, uh, how that would kind of, how you could see it somewhat in other people. Like I don't use clinical examples, but I use cultural examples and, um, and also just the, yeah, like the Oedipus complex is one of those things like, you know, everybody knows that it was central for Freud, but like, it's hardly talked about anymore. And then, so just to see like, you know, what, is it something that is like still significant? And I argue that, you know, the way he, he does look at it, um, to the point where like, uh, in one of his, um, articles on feminine sexuality, like he, he does say like, this is any triangular complex. Like, so anytime you have triangulation going on, like you can conceive of it this way. And, and it's not just like, you know, you want to, um, sleep with mom and kill dad. You know, it's also like, you know, in a work situation that you, you want to have the authority of the boss's position. Right. And, and you are going to, you can kind of undermine that person, criticize them, say things and, and triangulate with like, you know, other people in the vicinity in, in terms of reputation. 
and you could also have it with a friend, you know, there's, you can love a friend, but then be competitive with them at the same time. And, and so all that stuff I think is, is like, you know, it's a strange way to talk about it. Like you can use, like, um, he could have put things in more kind of abstract terms, I think. Um, but that, that was just like the way he found into like getting into the triangle. That was the first one that kind of showed up, but then he has family romances where he has like, you know, rescuing triangles where somebody's going to show up, you know, it has to get somebody out of that situation. And so it's, it's all there. And uh, I think that like, why not like, you know, um, go back to our tradition and, and say like, you know, that, um, this concept is, is complex enough that it can go be used in these different ways and, and let's keep it like, let's keep the language. If it has something to say that is like, um, valuable clinically or value valuable theoretically and understanding. So it was a plea to kind of go back to Freud. Um, but I'd say, you know, a Freud that I, I felt like I quoted him a lot and it was close to the text as opposed to like, I feel like Lacan's, you know, use of Freud a lot of the times is, is like for Lacan. Like, it's not like, you know, like I don't see Freud making the differentiation between the ego ideal and the ideal ego, you know, mm -hmm. like things like that. Like, I don't see that in his text when I read. So Lacan kind of just goes in, you know, um, kind of takes like little parts and then makes his own words and concepts. And I feel like that that detracts from like, you know, um, what's there in Freud and, and that you can find in a, in a different way. Um, but, uh, I'd say that, uh, there's so much, like, I feel like I could go on to psychic bisexuality and talk about all these different things. And I, I, if you have specific questions or, no, I was just going to ask comment, you about psychic bisexuality. So, um, um, what about it though? I feel like that the, these things are so big, you know, in the way that I'm cashing them out, like they're like, they are general, they're supposed to be able to kind of apply to a lot of situations. Um, I know that you, you read the, the chapter on it. So like, um, I guess, is there anything in that chapter that stuck out or that uh, you had problems with? No, I was just going to ask for you to kind of relate your ideas about it so that people mm -hmm. could know what you're thinking about. Well, I'd say the central thing, the, it, the split, is to take Freud's concept of activity and passivity, and that's what he relates, you know, because like, he does have a, um, he does um, have a concept, I'd say, like he doesn't call it gender, but he says that, you know, at cer a certain point in development that you get to actual masculinity and femininity, but before that time, like the difference between what we'd say, like, is sex between people is, he says, the difference between activity and passivity. Um, and he's careful to say that, like, um, that it's not just men are active and, and women are, are passive and like it's that simple. Like he says that, you know, you can look back in nature and see that some um, of like, uh, say, a lioness, some spiders that, um, and, and different animals like the insects, uh, the women are the larger ones and like um, are definitely the aggressors or, or more powerful. And so it's not like it's written into like um, – nature that like men must be the ones who have the say the musculature and the physical strength and dominance and then so from there it just becomes a question of like well like how else would you say like you know say in humans like how else would you cash out that like what is masculine and what is feminine in the sex way this active passive way and the concept in general just means that like you know we could have um like you know he called he uses the term hermaphrodite and, and kind of points out that like, you know, physically you could have the, the traces of both sex in a single individual. And so in personality too, you could have that. And, and his examples that he uses, like, uh, I think, uh, initially for feminine, for femininity in that way, are like, you know, shyness and modesty, like things like that. Um, but I also definitely have, male clients who are bashful, you know, or who are like, kind of don't like to be in the spotlight, don't like to put themselves out there, like in terms of say, approaching the, um, like the romantic object and, and asking him or her out on a date. Like, you know, there's that, that sense of fear or modesty or, or like not wanting to, um, be rejected. And, um, in contrast, you know, there's people who seem to have no fear of rejection like that, seem to have no fear of being the center of attention and, and put themselves up there strongly. And, and, and if that's part of like, you know, say psychosexual development and, and the psychoanalytic personality, as opposed to like different, um, cultural elements of like identifications with identity groups and, and certain things like, um, 
I, I think that's where the, the power of the concept lies is just like, you know, like how do we talk about confidence and things that are basic and basic to how we um, interact with others interpersonally. And like that doesn't just show up, you know, you, you don't have things like all Christians or all black people or all like, you know, different groups like show the same amount of confidence. That's just not the case. Like there's so many individual particularities and differences that you see in, in people, regardless of those larger identity things. Um, so it ends up being cashed out, I'd say, like in the book for me, it's like um, uh, that. Um, I have, I make four positions where it's like, um, so there's say masculine, um, um, narcissism and there's feminine narcissism. And then on the opposite side, you know, there's masculine and feminine, feminine echoism, which is like, uh, you know, where narcissism is about power or about being, um, admired and, and seen it like, you know, as say the most beautiful or the most intelligent, or the strongest, like, you know, qualities like that, like on the opposite side, you have people who, um, I'd say they, um, they are self-effacing. Um, they don't enjoy being seen that way. They want to put the desire of others before their own desires and, and help others fix others, um, try to, you know, make others more um, enlivened and like kind of make things more fun for everybody. And they want to kind of like, um, make sure that social engagements are, 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 are feeling like energetic and alive. And for, so like, it's kind of like, you know, you can call that being submissive. And I, and that's Freud's, one of his main points is, you know, you have people who react to authority with like, um, defiance or wanting to take the place of authority, or you have them being submissive or kind of wanting to attach themselves or get the approval of, of, of authority figures. And, um, and I think that, uh, you know, that's, that is the level of sex. That is the level of like interpersonal dynamics. And that is where psycho sexual development kind of really coheres and, and has something to say. And, uh, I, um, and I'd say my work now is, is, uh, is trying to find some of the, of the specifically thing, specific things that we can say are feminine symbols of this or masculine symbols or like what it, about this would say, like, you know, like besides just the general sense of like, I know more women who I'd say, um, are, uh, interested in like their clothing, how beautiful they are. Right. Like that, that those things like, um, show up in my personal experience. Like I see that more in women than men. But then, like, you know, it's not enough for me just to say, like, that, you know, in my personal experience, I've seen this. And so I think that that's more of a feminine trait. Like, now it's coming down to, like, well, how do these things show up in the body? How do these, how do these things show up in fantasies that you can say are specifically feminine? And uh, um, I have a few male patients now who are definitely have this, um, say, feminine narcissism of their appearance. And, like, um, they go to the gym, you know, they, they, uh, um, triangulate with other guys at the gym who are walking around, you know, like they're super buff, but it's not so much like, you know, the question of just them being physically stronger than them. It's also about like, you know, them looking better, um, them kind of like, uh, um, like I'd say, uh, um, in that exhibition of their body, you know what I mean? That just them walking around like that, that it's like also like my girlfriend's looking at him, um, my girlfriend likes this like athlete who's like, um, say a local celebrity cause he's like really good and like she thinks he's attractive and then that bothers him, you know? So it's like, um, those traits are in there. Um, and, and there's also, uh, a lot of interesting things that have shown up in like work with symbols, like, um, say with a few of them were like the mirror, um, like, um, say like, you know, in classic stories, you have that sense of that female narcissism of like the mirror on the wall and who's the fairest. Right. And, and, and in his, uh, one of Klein's uh, um, work, it's like, you know, he has, um, he looks in the mirror, he has little slogans and like kind of little things that he puts on the mirror to like, you know, build himself up and remind himself like how he's like, you know, not inferior and how he's good. And, and that's not from our work together. That's just like something he does on his own. Mm -hmm. Um, but also like, uh, along with some other female patients, like, you know, we've had, um, associations where the mirror breaks into shards and pieces and, and he has like those things that show up too, as they have, where it's just like, 
you know, it's very idiosyncratic and it, and it doesn't show up in everyone. And it's like, you know, there's similarities. And so I'm writing up these vignettes and trying to say like, you know, and, and these discussions and these interpersonal dynamics that we're getting into associations lead to like this similar material. And it's like, you know, there's something here across, um, just, you know, the, uh, anatomy of like, uh, you know, he's a man and, and they're women. Like there's something like that, um, shows up that is like, you know, some kind of common ground between the two this, regardless of, of, of those anatomical differences. Um, but, uh, what do you think of this idea of like it being like narcissist and echo? I really like that idea or like a power dynamic of like top bottom or passive and active to kind of move away from, um, just masculine and feminine, like gender types, but like more towards just like positioning between one another. Yeah. Um, that's what I think, you know, should be examined. And like, and like I said, like, you know, um, you can associate one more to, uh, like, um, to your experience of women being like this or, or not. Um, but like that, that symbol work, those it impulses, those things that show up, um, they, you know, show that it's grounded in that. But I, I, but yeah, I agree. I mean, like, um, the, who's on top, who's on bottom, who's superior, who's inferior, like, you know, belongs on the, the narcissistic egoistic side. And then the other side, I'm, uh, I tried to cash that out as like, you know, am I an, in, am I an insider? Am I an outsider? Like, do I feel like I belong here? Like, there's a lot of echoists who have like, um, what's classically referred to as like intrusion anxiety, like, you know, that, um, they kind of, um, feel like that, uh, like, to show up like, um, into certain discussions with friends or family, like to, for them to come in and kind of, they don't feel like that belonging in the group. And so they feel like that, you know, um, to come in is like, you know, I'm going to be too much like, you know, or, um, people don't really want me here and, and those kinds of things. And, that, and that's not so much like, you know, that's not like superior versus inferior, you know, it's just like, you know, um, do you feel accepted or not? Do you belong or not? And, um, things get more complicated when, um, with the idea that, uh, you know, that throughout psychosexual development, like those two poles of power and belonging start to intermingle. And so like, you know, by the end of, of like the phallic, um, Oedipus complex, by the end of like that, um, kind of completed development when you're like three to five, you know, is often what they theorize it as, you know, you can start to see that like on the side of altruism and echoism that like some of these, you know, activity things do start to come in more, you know, and, and same thing on the narcissistic side, like, you know, that they start to have, um, similar traits to, uh, the echoists, um, at the beginning of development, like, um, for me, like, uh, um, in my last book, uh, I made it, I made a big deal about the difference between primary and secondary narcissism and that in primary narcissism, like, you know, there's, um, it's, it shows up very much, um, different than it would in, um, secondary. And like, you know, Freud's examples are like having the person who's, uh, kind of obsessional and just like, I'm going to live as if the world kid, um, is going to end and I have to be able to do everything myself. And I have my guns and I have like my storehouse of food, you know, and I have like the bunker and all, and all that stuff. And, and they live that way. And it's like, you know, there's kind of social relations, like, you know, um, aren't that strong, right? Like the, um, they're, they're not what we'd say is classically a narcissistic personality disorder. You know, like it's something that, that really feels and, and looks different where when you get into secondary narcissism, there's enough of the altruistic and echoistic pull that come into that where you start to have the person who, you know, um, kind of wants to be this, uh, the center of attention more who like wants to, you know, um, like, uh, um, kind of appear better than they are and, um, tell you stories, um, and kind of, like, uh, show up for you in, in that kind of way. Um, and they're actually often good at it, you know, like they're often like, you know, to see them in psychotherapy groups like that I run, it's like when I have like a secondary narcissist, like, you know, he often wants to give advice to others and kind of be looked up to that way. And he does a lot of therapeutic work and, and kind of engages with them. And at some point, you know, it becomes a, an issue that, you know, he, maybe he'll like gain control of the group or, or kind of get like more attention focused than I do. And I'm left behind. So at some point, like that has to come into the group process, but like up until that point, like, you know, they are super helpful. And I, and I often like feel like, you know, he's saying things 
like in a more articulate way than I am. And plus just his general, say, physical presence. Like, you know, he's calm, he's even where I feel like I'm more on like the hysterical side, you know, and just people kind of naturally like look up to him and, and, and want to see what he's going to say. And like when those people have left groups, you know, like um, there's often uh, a sense of absence sometimes like that when they were there, it felt different and, and, and like in a, in a better way. And then that's something that, you know, has to be processed. But, um, yeah, that, that survivalist, that person who's like, you know, um, say on their own and kind of just like, uh, in- intellectual who's like, uh, doesn't have close relationships and is kind of just about figuring things out and like, whether it's working on his car, you know what I mean? And kind of taking things apart or whether it's like taking apart theories and, and figuring things out there. Like, you know, he, like they have a self-sufficiency and, and primary narcissism that's like, you know, can, can be impressive in another way, you know what I mean? That they can um, remember so much that they have so much going on in their head, but that secondary narcissist, you know, shows like more social embeddedness and more relationality there. And, um, and if you can, it's hard to articulate all the felt differences between that. Um, and that's, I think, I feel like that's what my work is right now is to really cash out, like, how can I get this phenomenology across to other people so that these concepts actually like, you know, are, are really felt for them. And like, I've been using movies and films so like, to, to try to say like, well, I'd classify this person this way. And then if you can see how they interact in these ways, then you can kind of take that on too. Um, but I'd say like, that's the, you know, that's how I experience people clinically, you know, is, is a lot of their, uh, interrelations and interactions as opposed to, um, you know, say just listening, um, for whatever unconscious content and, and, and not kind of looking at their, the, the intricacies of their life that way. Like I just, I, I'm built for it, or at least I'm, I'm interested in it. I want to ask questions about those things and that's how I operate, but I could appreciate, you know, there's many clinical styles. There's many different ways that you can do good work. I don't, I don't think there's one way to get at this stuff. Um, so that's your new book, which is psychoanalysis and hidden narrative in film reading the symptom. Yes. Which is a continuation of the theory from the old one. And with the, you know, it's getting, starting to get into film examples, like, so that some of these things can be like seen and, and felt a little bit better. I think that's really great though, using cultural references to show the theory to people and like how it plays out. Well, I think that like, you know, there's always that sense that a person can have doubts, you know, like I, I know that in some of the philosophical literature that engages with psychoanalysis, you know, there's, um, there's that sense of like, well, this is just the report of the analyst, you know, and, and like, how can we really know what's going on there? And so it just like to have something that's more objective and like, you know, is out there and created that you can engage with, I think kind of can bypass some of those like worries or criticisms that, you know, examples from the clinical session get. Um, so I think it's important to, to go that route, but, um, the more I look into other people who are doing psychoanalytic criticism, the more I feel like I, I get the sense that, um, that they're not working in that way and, and that they, um, you know, they, they, they're not appreciating, like, I guess, um, uh, a sense that, um, for how much, I guess, data or, or stuff you can mine from, from those things. Like, I think that they're just looking for like unconscious derivatives and they're not getting into like the bulk of the interactions. Like, but that's the problem in general for psychoanalysis, you know, like they, people can criticize the surface and be like, well, that's not deep, you know, like what's the deep motivation here. And for me, it's like, you know, if, uh, from a simple dialectical approach, like surface and, and depth are equally as important. Mm-hmm. Like, the way you show up on the surface says something that's deep about you where some of the um, unconscious stuff, you know, it doesn't really say that much. Oh, like this person produced a phallic symbol or this person produced this, like that to notice those things doesn't necessarily feel that deep either, you know, or like um, there's a lot of reference to um, dirtiness and things not being clean in this film or with this client. And then like that's anal maybe, you know, and that's messy anality. And it's like, well, that's, Sure. But like, how are you going to use it? Like, where, where does that go to actually, um, like say progress the client from those things into something more or like, you know, what more does it say about the film other than just noting something in it? So, um, and I also feel like psychoanalysis has been around long enough now that people tend to know a little bit about what maybe the analyst is looking for and might produce that for you 
uh, in like the phallic symbol or the dirty mess or whatever, but it's much harder to like produce a dynamic or a positioning as it is just this kind of content. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, um, I think that that can definitely happen and they can, and I've heard um, other analysts comment that, you know, that they, um, clients will often start to dream in the way that you want them to dream. And, and that suggestion and, and that kind of influence is there. Um, but when it comes down to it, like, you know, in your interpersonal life, like, you know, like I said, like you either um, are a person who can avoid the spotlight or who feels like they, um, that they don't like to be in those positions and that doesn't change. And that's like the bulk of the content that they want to talk about, you know, like when they're, um, when they're coming in and they're talking about their life, like, you know, they often can get into those patterns of like, I can't say no to this person or like he asked me for money again and I didn't want to, but I gave in and, and that's on the surface again. And I'm not saying that, uh, on its own, it's necessarily like something that, uh, is, is deep unless you, you can find a way to work with it that way. Like, um, you know, there's a lot of people that have that people pleasing and not saying no. And there's CBT people who try to work with that and make interventions and just try to change the behavior. But, um, for me, it's like, um, I found that like, there's lots of ways to work with it that are deep. Um, and let me give an example. Um, so it's very common, um, when you have this, uh, say issue with saying no, that you can get the person to, um, think about the last situation with, uh, whoever wanted to, um, get some money from them. And then all the reasons why they didn't want to like give them money. Um, but it's not just to kind of like give them the logical reasons. It's just kind of just like, well, just for you to, um, kind of build that up. Like, you know, you have kids you have to take care of, you have like things that you need to do and you need this money for that. And then, so I'll get them to come up with all their reasons why they shouldn't have done it. Um, and then like from there kind of do a future rehearsal where they picture the person, they tell them all the reasons like, um, why they can't give them the money. And then they, um, tell me the, like the reaction they feel like they'll get from the person. And oftentimes it's, um, the common theme is like, you are selfish. You don't care about me. I don't want to be around you. I'm not going to, I'm going to, um, walk away from you. Um, and, and when I get, uh, all those statements about how they expect the other person to feel, I'll get them to reverse it and say that about somebody from their past. Like, you know, you're selfish. You don't want to help me. Like, I don't want to be around you. And then they'll always be able to get to like another person they felt that way towards. And, and that's what I understand to be. Melanie Klein's uh, concept of projective identification, like that they've switched the um, roles of like um, of self and then parental imago. And then they've like become the good parent who's like supposed to be like taking care of other people and who's supposed to be helpful. And then they put their feelings into the other person. And then when you reverse that and you get back to the times that they felt that the other, the parental imago or the person who's in that role was selfish. Like they'll have feelings they have to work out there. They'll have like, you know, anger, they'll have, um, different forms of like it aggression towards that person. And then we process that, like we express that and get that out. And then afterwards they can say no. And it's not, you know, like my after session, after session of like trying to like, you know, coach that person and be like, you have to stand up for yourself. And you know what I mean? Trying to get them to break through that wall and actually like, um, say what they want to say to the person or, or stop giving them money. And it could happen. So it happens like a lot quicker than, than the work they do. It gets, you know, to reverse, it shows the psychodynamic or psychoanalytic quality. And then like, um, it's, uh, been super valuable. Like I'd say that like, it's really rewarding to start to see those like um, almost instant changes. And when you have people who don't stand up for themselves and like who give away this money or who take shifts at work that they don't really want to take and they don't have time to take, like, um, their lives are super stressed and they have all these other reasons to like use the drugs or alcohol that they do if if that's their issue or to, you know, um, kind of sink back into depression, you know, after giving feeling like they gave so much and nobody cares about them, like they care about other people. And, um, that loosens like the need for like the larger, um, like symptom problems. And then from there, like, you know, um, like once they have like less stress in their lives, they're more open to like some of the free association, some of the things it takes to get to like working with the larger, um, defenses like depression. So, um, so along with the theory, along with the use of films, like I'm definitely going down this avenue where I'm, I'm trying to do innovations in, in technique and 
I don't know um, at this point, like how other people are receptive, like how receptive they will be to them because it's not a traditional way. But I definitely feel like this is directly from the psychoanalytic theory that I've um, understood um, directly from my studies of it, like, you know, to 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 see people in this fluid state that they can be the subject or the object. and, And it's so reversible. And, and anybody who's worked, <clears throat> I think, in the clinic long enough, and when you see patterns like that, you know, it's um, like this is directly from <clears throat> like people's lives. Like, you know, like this woman's last three boyfriends were they were the ones who kind of wore the pants in the relationship. They were the ones who, um, say, controlled the money or made the decisions about things. And she often felt like she was walking on eggshells with them, you know, and coming home. And are they going to be in a bad mood or not? And then when I see her, she's the one who's wearing the pants. She's the one who has a boyfriend who's like walking on eggshells and she can be in a bad mood. And she's like, you know, done that projective identification where she's in the other place. And it's like, you know, we had to um, reverse that and get back to the previous boyfriends. Oftentimes, like she can even identify that like her real love and her real passion was for these men in the past. And the one she has now, it's kind of like a a game-like relationship, like where she can have feelings for him, but it's not as serious and it's not as vulnerable, right, as it was for the the other men. And you'll see those reversals there in the history. And, and like, you know, it's impressive. Like, you know, I, I didn't know um, getting into the field, like how much, like, um, the, that those kinds of things were there and those patterns were, were so strongly there. Um, do you, I mean, do you have a thought about that? Do you yeah, see and how those? it can be really clear and how when you do work through it with people or able to identify these patterns, they're able to see it pretty readily in my experience, even if they might forget it again and, and, and act it again, you know, but there's always a point where there's really some insight. Yeah. And that, that's uh that point is like, you know, really, um, I think rewarding, you know, and, and kind of just, uh, for me, it's like, you know, like there's certain sessions that feel really deep, you know, and, and, and when you get to those sessions, like where they're able to say like, you know, I, yeah, that, um, even though I've been, I'm talking about this guy that I love, um, and having these issues with him, it's like, I like for, to get to that point where you're like, but I, I know that like, this isn't like, um, like, uh, a healthy relationship. And I know that I'm not really vulnerable in it. And I know that it's not really like satisfying or where I want to be and, and to get back to some of the old ones so they can, so they can actually like open themselves up to, to be with the type of person that they actually can say, feel really in, in love with. Um, like, and, and to hear them talk about it in that way, like, um, that's some of the most rewarding experiences, like for me, like to, um, some of the best discussions. Cause a lot of this stuff I find like, you know, when you work analytically, um, a lot of the insights, like, um, you know, like they, there is a shift in the person you can tell that they're acting differently, but you all, you don't always have those conversations of like, this was a big moment. And I realized this, like a lot of it doesn't come from say insight, um, based stuff that like, that they can trace it back to like why it shifted or changed. You just see that there's a change in their behavior. But, um, when that is there and it is shared or when, when you're working transferentially to yourself, you know, and, and you can kind of, um, get back to like, well, you know, you're treating me like, um, your mother, like, you know, the, like, um, you know, her, when she was, when you were a teenager and she was like being super strict with you and you were feeling her to be this way. And like, now you're coming in and feeling me that way. Like, like those moments for me often, like, um, when I, when you do interpret, when you can kind of get the person past that, um, you know, there's not a, a, a good discussion about it. They just come in and they feel differently about you next time. You know, it's just, it's just over. And it's good that, um, I'm, it happens. Like, I mean, it's needful for it to happen, but, um, I like to, to have those insight conversations with them too, where they, they really feel like the changes and they really, um, they really can say something about themselves. Um, but that, that's, uh, that's me personally. <laughs> well, and what I really appreciate about what you're doing is developing your own theory, going back to the original Freud text, reading other analysts as well, but developing your own ideas based on your reading of the text, your reading of Freud and your experience in the clinic, and then trying out techniques that you found work repeatedly for you with your patients. And I feel like 
I wish that more analysts would work in that way because they feel like a lot of people are trying a lot to, you know, adhere to Lacan and what he said. But what Lacan did and what Jung did and what Reich did and what Freud did was work with what their experience of their clinical work was and develop their theory from there. I mean, I feel like that's what, you know, what, um, say, self-psychology and relational psychoanalysis are, are, are we're trying to get at in some ways, that strong emphasis on, like, you know, like you are a certain um, type of person or personality and your and your client is too. And that like, you know, you have to always take those things into account. Like you can't be that neutral person, the neutral analyst and, and think that you're fooling anybody, you know? And I, I think that point was already in the classical stuff. Like, I don't think that like, you know, that that point of view was lacking there, but you know, the history of psychoanalysis in some ways is just the emphasis that those kind of neglected aspects need and then that becomes prominent in a given school or, or a given field. And, and then, you know, um, it, I'd say that like, that's been in, internalized at this point, but you know, then the issue is like all the baggage that comes along with it, like the, the social constructivism and like some of the postmodern theory that went into relational psychoanalysis so that they kind of lost touch with a lot of psychosexuality and a lot of like um, Freudian basics. Um, but yeah, I, I'd say that like, you know, you have to be yourself, you know, you, you can't, you can't bullshit the patient. Um, you can't try to, you know, be like a, a little Lacan or like a little Reich. Like if you don't have that in you to like, um, that your, your presence comes up in a certain way. Like, um, so like Reich's famous for his character analysis and kind of interpreting things. And it's just like, you know, I, I can see him, you know, as a strong person, as a person who has that, that sense of presence where he can, um, you know, be saying to the person like, okay, like, you know, you come in here and you complain every single session and just, you know, um, to kind of attack that mode that they're coming in. Um, and like that the person can take that from him, you know what I mean? And like, they're going to keep on coming back. Right. Or if you're not a, a person who's getting a certain transference from the, the patient, like, and you're say, um, interpreting like their, their character so strongly, like, you know, some of them are going to, um, just like either, uh, say bite back or, or say something to you and it's not, and it's not going to be a good situation. Others are going to, you know, um, not like feel too defensive by it and, and they're not going to, you know, want to work on it or, or anything. And so like, you know, there's, I think different techniques from schools to say like, well, don't attack it straightforward, you know I mean? Join the defense and, and work with it that way and complain with them about the world, you know what I mean? And get in, and get into that dynamic so that they come out of it naturally. But I think, you know, uh, Reich is a person where, he didn't have to do that and he could go head on. And if you're a person who could go head on, then, you know, you should be trying to find that kind of material or that those techniques where you can act that way with people and, and use your abilities, like use your personality and, and be more active. But I, I think that, you know, psychoanalytic institutes are more about the uh, indoctrination at this point. Like they, they, they don't have a good sense for these different subject positions or, or libidinal types and, and, and kind of, um, say like, well, saying like your counter transference you'll get from patients is going to be this way, right? Or you're going to figure for them this way. And, and so we'll put you with these teachers and, and these um, classes and, and get the um, size fits all. Um, and that's what I think is the most dissatisfying thing like about institutes and, and my experience there. And from what I've heard from other people, it's just like, you know, you, if you don't appreciate your candidates subjectivity and, and, and working with their strengths and you're just going to try to fit them in the mold, like what's, what's the point? Like, um, and, and even with clients too, like coming in, like, uh, I feel like a good clinic should be, you have a, you know, people who come in <clears throat> and you have people who do intakes and they classify like the, 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 t the person, the type, you know, who would they be best for and kind of like funnel them in those directions. But instead it's like, you know, every job I've, I've worked at, like every community clinic, it's very random. It's like, you know, at, at best it'll be like, oh, Trevor's a person who'll work with borderline clients or, or people who suffer from schizophrenia. So we'll give him all like these tough cases, you know what I mean? And I'm willing to work with them, but I also know too, like my limitations in some ways, like some people, um, who have like those kind of bigger issues, like I, I have a good rapport with and I work really well, but not all of them, you know? And so, um, I don't know. I, I can get idealistic about like what the, the future can be and like how we can get to the point where we can have all this stuff in a much more efficient way. But I know that like right now, like, um, we're like, we're not there. There's still a lot of tribalism between schools and, and like, you know, 
nobody's kind of on board for these kind of bigger projects, or at least it doesn't feel like that at this point. You know, people still want to kind of be in their school, kind of write in their jargon, do their things and have their kind of success or notoriety in, in those camps. But like, um, there's no larger umbrella. I mean, and, and there's, there is the IPA, right? Like there are like larger organizations out there, but like, um, I'm not a member. Um, the people I know who are members don't talk about it in a way where it's like really fulfilling or, or there's good things going on there. Um, which yeah. kind of brings me to DU in some ways. <laughs> like, well, that's what um, I was going to say when we started yeah. Das Limbahagen, uh One of the first speakers we had was Otto Kernberg, and Otto Kernberg talked to us about this paper he wrote called uh, 30 Ways to Kill the Creativity of a Psychoanalytic Candidate. <laughs> uh, did any of them stick out to you? <laughs> oh, I don't remember them now, but at the time it was exactly everything that was happening when I was at the Institute. <laughs> um, for the people that don't know psychoanalysis, the ins and outs so much of the training and everything, there's so many different uh, schools, like you're referring to, of psychoanalytic thought, and none of these institutes talk to each other. And it's such a shame because, you know, the field of psychoanalysis is so small in itself as it is. There's so few analysts, and then everybody's so divided. Like, nobody talks to the Jungians. They, they all stay to themselves. Uh, there's the Lacanians, the moderns, the ego psychologists, relational. There's so many different schools of thought, and it's like there might be one slight ideological difference that people will just find intolerable in another school, and then they won't want, they'll like discount that whole other school of thoughts theory. And I find that to be such a shame when I'd rather just see people you know, okay, this theorist said this and this that I like, and this I don't really find useful. So then don't use that, but don't discount someone's entire theory just because there's something that you don't agree with. I think that's a problem in academia in general, I've found. Mm -hmm. It frustrates me. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what modern psychoanalysis is for people who don't know. Um, I'd say that the main thing with modern psychoanalysis is just uh, it came from Spotnitz, Hyman Spotnitz, and and uh, and it's, it was it's almost like the opposite of of Reich and character analysis. Instead of attacking, you just join. I, I think I kind of mentioned that a little bit earlier, and then uh, from there, like um, like for me, if I get somebody who's narcissistic. Um, <clears throat> And somebody, you know, who kind of has to be superior, seems really guarded, things like that. Like that's the, um, I almost always go into that technique. And for me, it's like, you know, like, like other um, patients, I'll start off the sessions with like, okay, I, I need to know you. I need to get a bit of your history and kind of understand what kind of person you are. Like, tell me about your childhood. Tell me about when you were, you know, in middle school, high school and like how you fit in, were you popular or not? Like, you know, those kinds of interactions kind of give you a sense for, what a person might be carrying with them, some of their, you know, if they've been lifelong loners, you know, if, if they do feel like themselves to be like popular or special compared to other people, like you can like get that stuff from their past and those patterns carry on into the present. And then, you know, um, so with somebody who's guarded and narcissistic, oftentimes they're not going to go into that many details. And then we'll go through like, you know, um, some points in their lives. And, and like, for me, like I, join their egos and, and like say with some, um, uh, people like that who are criminals that I see, you know, it's like, they'll tell me about, um, say selling drugs, how much money they made. There'll be those moments where they want to impress me, you know, and kind of like, um, show me how powerful they were or like how far they went. And then I'll express like surprise as like, you know, that like, um, kind of just like the surprise that they didn't get into, like, they didn't make more money surprise that they didn't like, you know, they weren't in a higher position than they were and kind of just feel like, you know, kind of compliment them and just like, you know, like, it seems like, you know, you can play all the angles and you knew what was going on, you know, and just saying those things to them like that, that make it, make me ego syntonic, make me kind of in their bubble and that they're not like say on guard, like waiting for my criticisms or me to like take them apart or get them to face hard situations. And then from there, like, you know, after enough spoon feeding of the ego, after joining them enough, um, you know, then they start to bring in some of the bad stuff themselves. And that's kind of like, you know, them kind of contacting you and like, um, and, um, when I say that it's like, you know, the main way that they conceive of contact is like, 
when you, because um, the, the theory or the, the practice or the clinical technique was initially for, you know, schizophrenic clients, like for, for people who are really severely narcissistic. And like, and it's just like, you sit there and they can go on and on and talk and you're just kind of waiting for them to like actually even like you to show up in their object field, you know what I mean? Waiting for them to like ask you a question or kind of even show that they acknowledge your presence. And that's like, in some ways the contact there, but in, like I said, for secondary narcissism for clients like that too, like I just, I also expanded to conceive of it as like spoon feeding the ego until they, they want to bring in like some of the vulnerable content themselves. And then they start to bring in like, you know, their triangulations of like, they have haters, right. They have people that, that don't like them or who are jealous of them. They start to maybe like kind of say that like, you know, even though they, um, told you these stories where they were always in a good position or they're always in the right. Then they start to bring in like how they, you know, they maybe don't always feel that way. And then once you're in the bubble, you can start to get into that a bit and, and, uh, you know, and still slowly, but it's just like, you're letting them bring that out. And, uh, and again, very valuable for, for certain types. And then for other types, like, um, you know, years and years and years of, of being in that position and then like nothing really, you know what I mean? Happening. Um, like, you know, there's, it's not uncommon for like some of my professors in classes to talk about having a client for 20 years, you know? And it's just like, and, and they would often want to tell you about the stories where there was progress or some change, but I also feel too like, well, don't come at everybody the same way. And it's like, and I definitely know that there's people I can be more active with and see change with quicker in that way. And, and, uh, so I've, I've dropped whatever indoctrination I might've had, you know, and, and just kind of wanted to go with like, like what feels like it works. What works, and, yeah. And, you know, if I think, you know, in, in that way too, like, uh, I think part of the issue is like, like one of the things that really bothers me about Lacanians is that, you know, you'll have like somebody going back and taking Dora or the rat man and trying to go back over like Freud's clinical example from like over a hundred years ago. And it's just like, well, why aren't we, why aren't there new Doris? Why aren't there new rat men? Like, why aren't there like, why aren't you writing books instead of being like high theory or like, you know, smugly taking apart, like something that Freud gave or, you know what I mean? Like some dream that he produced, like, you know, giving us like those new case studies that really show like how you're working and the techniques and, and like Han set himself up like, you know, he was an Oracle in that way. And that you're just supposed to believe what he said and here's his concepts and here's references to philosophy. But like, you know, he didn't take you into his cases and like, um, and that creates, you know, that, that, um, the, those positions of like, you know, uh, you know, who's the new heir of like Lacan and, and who gets to make high Oracle, like, or oracular pronouncements like Lacan, you know what I mean? In that field. And, and you see that like, um, in a lot of the presentations I've seen, it's like, you know, they're either high theory or like, um, you know, they're so uh, like obscure and jargon filled that it's like, it's not practical for me, like you know, I don't take anything away where I'm like, oh, I'm going to try this with the clients or I'm going to, you know, or like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to like I like the way that they have of like understanding um, different types of people. And I'm going to I'm going to like see if I can see that in some of my clients, you know. Um, so part part of this issue is that we still have a lot of that and 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 we allow a lot of that where um, people can talk and, and act that way and, and write in a certain style and no one calls them on their bullshit. You know, like nobody says anything to them. It's just kind of like, we all have to pretend the emperor has clothes or debates between people will be like, who can reference as many books or classical philosophers or, or other things, you know, and bring in like those references. And then like, they kind of just never, there's no teeth, there's no engagement that, um, leads to a, a conclusion. It's just like, you know, you spew out your monologue, I'll spew out my monologue. And then we walk away, like both thinking we were right. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping that like by having all these clinical examples, I'm hoping that by like, again, using the films that like, um, that there, I at least feel like, um, in good conscience that I'm like, I'm doing things in a way that I'm seeing in a way that, um, I'm backing up in a way that like I'm showing commonalities between different, um, say clinical or character types and like, and putting that out there and that's, and that there's going to be like other people that like, you know, will engage with my material and have like, say some 
counter arguments. Well, I, I had, you know, somebody like this and they didn't go this way, you know, and, and that we could have real discussions. Like I, I feel like I'm, you know, writing these things up and I'm, I'm trying to say things that I see for sure. Like I've seen this with like, you know, several clients. This isn't, isn't just like a one-off thing that's magical or, or on its own. Like that should be like, you know, say for me, like that's what I understand to be the scientific drive is like, you know, it's like something that is consistent that shows up and is reproducible. And, and there's a common theme that goes here. And then like, you know, that's what's valuable. That's what's, um, say maybe not universal in every single person, but again, if we're, if we're breaking down people into types in this type, it's universal that shows up each time. And that's the best we can do. Like we can't find the secret, um, thing that's, um, the, you know, the deep problem in every single person, you know, and, and like the underlying thing, like it's always penis envy for women or it's always castration for men. Like, you know, Freud talks about those bedrocks and, um, and I think, you know, if you have that, um, if you appreciate his complexity, then you can say like, well, these things can show up in a, in a few different types of ways. And so maybe you can take that as a universal statement, but for the most part, you know, like, um, I, I kind of look back and, and see that as the, one of the big errors in psychoanalytic history is like universalizing and trying to say like, you know, that we're all the same deep down or that we all have the same issue. And, um, and between that and getting into the postmodern experience of like we're all uniquely singular and there's nothing that we can say, like, you know, I feel like that right now I'm coming to that middle ground of like, well, we'll break it down and now talk about these types and, and no more universalizing and no more, you know, um, super long case studies where like, you know, you're, you're getting into this individual's dynamics and like, and, and, and talking about how there's you know, all this intersectionality and there's all these things coming in. It's like, um, I don't want to say that that's not an issue or that, you know, sociology and those things don't have any influence. They do, but like, that's not the content I work with clinically, you know, like the stuff that, that comes up is the interpersonal content that has to do with like transference of past experiences onto new people. So I feel like that's something that comes up a lot for me. Like, um, that was actually one of the most important things about the, the beginning of like some of the clinical innovations was like Freud's idea about melancholia, right? Like the self reviling, the self, uh, abasement that, that comes from there is often meant for the loved one, right? Like that you have a, a lover who jilted you and left you. And that like some of the things that you could have said about him or her now become statements you say about yourself. And like, and that was like one of the first times that like, you know, I reversed like the statements, you know, like to say, I, I'm selfish, I'm lazy, I'm a bad person, whatever. And then just say like, well, if you say those about somebody else from your past, like, you know, significant on people that you're, have been significant to you, whether they're parents or, or lovers or friends or whoever. And, and you could oftentimes get to like, you know, that, that bad relationship or, or something where it's like, you know, um, that I can say all those things about my father, you know, and then get back to those times in the past where it's like, you know, he was, um, not at home enough. And like, when he came home, he was like, you know, really a jerk and, and all the things they'll, they'll get into. And, um, so yeah, for me, like, uh, those things that, that melancholia, that interjection of like the, you want to idealize or look up to the person. And if they do bad things, you still want to idealize them. So you take that into yourself so that you can still have that, that view of them. Just like the narcissist will wants to see himself as good or powerful. And he'll often, you know, take the badness inside and be like, well, this person did this and I'm going to blame them. Right. And they'll keep their self idealization and, and kind of put the bad stuff out there somewhere else. And it's just, um, but I just, for me, it's like, you know, um, I've always been able to find a historical person, right. An interpersonal dynamic that that came from and never just like, you know, as if they watched, um, enough movies or, you know, they had like, um, they engaged with enough cultural material that they just internalized that from like the, um, stuff out there. You know what I mean? Like, as if like, um, like a woman who has inferiority about her beauty as if she read, um, she looked at too many, um, magazines with like pretty models, you know, with our airbrushed. And so she compared herself so much that she has this bad self image. Like I've never seen that. Like it's always come from like her say like bad view and in inferiority about her beauty has always got caught up in dynamics of like, you know, um, triangles with like other women or her mom or somebody else that, that, that becomes salient. Like I, that cultural stuff isn't that powerful, or at least in my experience, I haven't seen the power of it that you would just have those ideas out there. The ideas would somehow like attach to you and then you're screwed, you know, and there's no way to get them out unless you have these giant kind of conversations about identity stuff. No, like, I would uh, think that I've always been able to talk 
when I talk to patients about it or have them explore, I should say, uh, it's always been able to come down to some sort of family dynamic or positioning in that way. And maybe the cultural, the way the culture was set up had somehow influenced the way the family was set up. But it always seems to be that there was um, definitely a family dynamic where that idea got implanted in them at an early age. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then once that, I, um, once that say, um, negative, like, or that superego self-criticism or that negative self-image is in there, I mean, then you start to have people who are looking for, like, the bad stuff culturally all the time. You know, like, then, you know, they're complaining about, like, the magazines or, you know, um, how culture culture is shallow and is skin deep and is looking at beauty, but it shouldn't be that important. And they'll, they'll have those conversations, but that's, like, the rationalization of something that's already there. You know what I mean, and like, and they're just kind of going with it, um, right? Because there could be other another person in the same culture that's family dynamic didn't have that set up that isn't noticing those things as much, and yeah. they don't seem as ingrained of a problem. Yeah, and even within the same family, like people mm-hmm. who got the same cultural upbringing, and, and this sister and that sister are different, or these two brothers are very different, and they don't have the same self criticism or, or, or self images. Yeah, um, so I. I feel I like that's that, something that's really useful in psychoanalysis that people are, be able, are able to see when they've been in analysis for a while, when they start yeah. seeing how they pick up on things in the environment that are validating these internal issues that have started at a very young age. And that you don't have to, like you said, be picking up on those all the time. They might be there to pick up mm-hmm. on, but you can change your kind of patterning and so that that's not affecting you as much in that way. Yeah. And I'd say that reminds me of like another issue with, I think, some psychoanalytic theory or theorizing is that, you know, is that everything has to happen within like, um, you know, ages like zero to to five, like that it has to be like very deep childhood stuff, like um, like where a lot of this is like um, Freud's idea of melancholia, that a lot of this stuff does become a problem only after these bad relationships when you're in your um, teen years or you're in your 20s or you're in your 30s. And we, we see that. Like, I feel like it's um, for anybody who's empathic at all, like you watch your friends get older and you see them change because of like um, they got fired or they or this they got this big breakup or something else happened or they're trying to have kids and it's just not happening. And then, you know, like who they are afterwards, like shifts it to a big extent that it's like, hey, you used to go out all the time and now you're like a recluse and I never see you. And like and those things that those triangles or, or, or there are dynamics that happen later like for me like I are um like that's the the main content I'd say that I work with is getting back to those specific ego injuries and those specific emotions and trying to get the stuff out of there and what I see is coming from deep material that or at least like in the way that I work is you know <clears throat> is having like those um so you get back to something that made you angry and then um we'll work with it through the body and then you'll want to like express it as like um, I want to like strangle this person with my hands or I want to like, you know, behead them, like chop off their heads or, or, um, go into their, um, chest and rip out their heart. Like I've had clients, you know, that, that show like these strange, um, forms of aggression along with their anger or hate towards that person that want to come out. And then for me, that's the content from childhood developments, you know, that strangely comes in somehow and like the classic Kleinian way, right? Like how else would it be salient to like, you know, cannibalize somebody or bite them unless that was like the child's kind of immature view of the world and and the significance of like the oral zone, you know, um, for like wanting to eat and and take um, nurturance from either the breast or from food and, and like, you know, a stage where the teeth are involved in that and you're chewing versus like an earlier stage where there's like just the sucking and there's no teeth involved in it. Like, um, I find myself reading more and more um, Klein and trying to get to like some of those insights that she had from her play therapy and, and, and she has from her, her development that way. But like, I, I rarely find myself going back to like, you know, this memory of when you were two, like sometimes that stuff shows up and it's impressive, like when it does, but like, I, I don't like for me, like I, I don't see that um, coming up very often or as, as very needful or important to where I know a lot of other people want that reconstruction, you know what I mean? Of like, you know, well, your, um, your family dynamic back when you were four, like you had a older, you know, or you had a sibling that was born. And so like, that must be something, right? Like you had to have envy of that sibling. 
or you were displaced. You used to be mom's favorite, you know, but now like this baby came along and, and, um, and again, I appreciate that maybe like, um, they're better trained in that way and they know what they're looking for. And then they find the derivatives and they get to like establishing that, that good reconstruction and picture. Um, and I just didn't have the, the training for that. But I, I also feel like that, um, like, uh, I also don't know how important that is in terms of getting them over this stuff and getting them to undo defenses, you know, that like, um, for me, I, the primary focus is like, uh, I should be helping this person get better. They should be less depressed or, you know, they should be getting rid of these interpersonal like dynamics that are causing them issues and that like, you know, moving on as opposed to like, you know, um, they have better insight, you know, like that's just, um, I feel if you're coming to a therapist for help that way, like that's, that should be the focus. Um, but of course there's people in private practice that can offer whatever they want, you know what I mean? And, and they can, um, you can come in and be looking for self-knowledge and not be looking to say like overcome those things. But, um, that's where my guilt or at least my feeling of like duty or obligation, like lies to like, like, you know, is getting, turning some of that neurotic suffering into like, you know, something that's like better, like that there's more satisfaction in life, that they're able to connect more with others in in more varied ways. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard an interview with Trevor Peterson, psychoanalyst and author, who has also contributed a piece to the upcoming book, Rendering Unconscious, on essence, alienation, and the economics of libido. For more, please visit our publisher's website, trapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net or renderingunconscious.org or my website, drvanessasinclair.net. Brutality of war, 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 brutality of and 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 and